Good morning, guys. Uh, I'm glad to be able to break open God's Word with you this morning. We're coming to you from the Fellowship Hall. Feels like it's been a long time since we've been here, but one of these days we'll get back together again in this very room uh, to study God's Word together. But today is a, a special day in the church year. Today is Palm Sunday, and it's the beginning of what the church has traditionally referred to as, as Holy Week. It's the this is the first day of the of the, the last week of earthly week of Jesus' earthly life that ended in the cross on Friday and the resurrection on Sunday. So it's a special week in the life of the church. And if you're one of our college students watching uh, today, I hope that you have noticed that we sent you a liturgy uh, this morning in your email uh, for for today. And we're going to send you a, a new liturgy every day this week uh, to guide you through scriptures. Uh, pertaining to that last week of earth, Jesus' earthly life. And uh, some of the scriptures you may have read this morning already are Psalm 22, which is a very important psalm that Jesus um, quoted on the cross that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and you, you read Isaiah 53. Uh, if, you, if you just covered up the, the, um, the chapter number in the book that it comes from, you might think, that that was a New Testament description of the cross. It is so specific in its detail. And you would have read in the New Testament Philippians 2, highlighting the, the, the humility of Christ that we're to, to follow as an example in our own lives. But the last scripture you would have read in that liturgy is the passage we're going to study this morning from Matthew's Gospel, chapter, chapter 21. We're going to take a break from our study in the book of Acts uh, just to to uh, take a couple of weeks, this week and next, Palm Sunday and Easter, to think about themes that are uh, appropriate to those days. And so today I want us to think for a few minutes about the triumphal entry uh, recorded for us in Matthew 21. Specifically, I want to think about uh, who it was on that Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, who, who it was that was triumphantly entering Jerusalem on that, on that day? Of course, the simple answer is that it was Jesus, right? That's the, that's the obvious answer. But as we look at Matthew's gospel, I want us to notice that Matthew doesn't simply say Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that day, uh, but he tells us the story in a very particular way that, uh, that, tells, that describes Jesus to us in a particular way. We're told that it was, it was Jesus coming into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, but we're told it was him and given at the same time a fuller um, picture of who Jesus is. And that's what I want us to see together for just a few minutes. So if you have your Bible, I, I hope that you would take it and find Matthew chapter 21, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21. And I want us to see how my, Matthew highlights the entering of Jesus on that Sunday, how it was the triumphal entry of our prophet, priest, and king. That's how I want us to, to frame Matthew's account of this, that it wasn't just the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, but as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, it was the triumphal entry of our prophet, priest, and king. That's how he is presented to us in this passage. And I want us to understand what that means, and why it's important to see Jesus in that threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. So if you found Matthew chapter 21 in your Bibles, look with me beginning in verse 1. 
And we'll read through verse 13. All right, so beginning in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, and he's quoting Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Verse 12, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Let's pray over God's word. Father in heaven, we recognize and we confess to you our faith that what we just read is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. We bow in submission to it. It is your word over us. And so as we come to it, we don't come presumptuously, but we come humbly and we ask that you would give us minds to understand and see the truth that you have for us in these words. Would you please, as you give us minds to understand the truth, would you give us hearts to embrace and love the truth that we see? We ask that because we know elsewhere in Scripture you describe those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So we know it's not enough for us merely to know the truth. We have to love it. So give us that love in our hearts. And once you've done that, would you please, Lord, give us wills to obey whatever it is you call us to do in these, in these words. Give me the help that I need to teach and give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what I want us to do from this passage that we just read is not only highlight Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on that day, but like I said, highlight those, those, those three broader truths about who Jesus is, as it describes to us here. As you might have already guessed by what I've already said, those broader truths are about Jesus were that as, as, as the Savior sent to save us from our sins, he was prophet, priest, and king. Those, those three offices are going to, I say prophet, priest, king, because that's how we're accustomed to arranging them when we talk about that. They're going to appear in this passage in a slightly different 
uh, order. Uh, so we'll, I want us to see them in the way that they appear in this passage. And Matthew is first going to present Jesus here to us, not only as a Savior who has come to save us, but as the King who has come to save us. So let's, let's think about how we see that here. How do we see Jesus as King in this passage? Well, I, in my estimation, this is the most prominent thing about Jesus in these verses um, because it shows us Jesus as King in a couple of different ways. Um, the story begins in verse 1 telling us that, that Jesus and his disciples, as, as they were getting close to Jerusalem, before they actually got to the city, Jesus sent two of his disciples on an errand. He said, go, go to a certain place and I want you to, to, to find a donkey and a colt and bring them to me. So Jesus was going to ride uh, the donkey into Jerusalem. Now, that may either seem unimportant. I mean, it was common in that day prior to, uh, you know, cars and other transportation. If they didn't want to walk somewhere, they would have to ride some animal. So it, it, it may seem unimportant that he, that he got a colt or a donkey and, and rode that donkey into town. It may seem unimportant. It may seem like a strange request. If they had been walking the whole way and it, if it wasn't a, a long walk, why suddenly request, request those animals to ride on? But Matthew's going to show us that that, that request for the two disciples to go find a, a donkey and a colt and bring them to him as he rides them into town is, is full of significance. It wasn't just that Jesus was tired of, of walking, but by riding into town in that way, he was fulfilling something that the Old Testament prophets uh, had said, specifically the prophet Zechariah about the Savior who was to come. Specifically, Matthew says that Jesus, as he came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, he was fulfilling the prophecy that we find in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Matthew quotes that for us in verse 5, if you're looking at your Bible. And notice carefully how Matthew quotes what Zechariah says in Zechariah 9, 9. He says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Okay, who is coming to you? Your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to save. Matthew says that Jesus is, is that king that Zechariah was talking about and fulfilling that prophecy. He's making, by, by coming into Jerusalem in that way, in that dramatic way, before he even says a word, before he even outwardly says, I'm fulfilling, he is showing this by his actions that he's fulfilling that prophecy. He's making public his fulfillment of that prophecy from the prophet um, Zechariah through this act of entering Jerusalem on that day. And apparently, before he even said a word, all the people in Jerusalem who were gathered on that day recognized that in some sense as well. Now, they may have misinterpreted it or not seen the full significance of what Jesus uh, is, is intending by it, but they recognized that fact in some way, because as Jesus entered the city on that donkey, they waved palm branches, and they spread their cloaks on the road, and they spread their cloaks uh, in, in the way. And notice what they shout, according to verse 9 in this passage. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So he's coming in the name of the Lord because he is the Lord. He is the King. And they say that, they recognize that at least at some level when they say right there, Hosanna to the Son of David. 
Hosanna to the Son of David. They'll say it again down in verse 15. We didn't read that verse, but if you look down at verse 15, uh, when the chief, it says, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, the children were even crying, Hosanna to the Son of David. They were indignant. Indignant. I mean, that, that's a strong word for the, for the Jewish rulers to, to react with in this way. When they say, Hosanna to the Son of David, not only were they bothered, they were indignant by what they said. That's a strong word. And to them, it was for good reason. They were indignant because they knew the significance of praising him in this way, calling him son of David, son of David. Who was David? David was the greatest king in the, in the history of Israel. And God had given a promise, well known, made a covenant with David to all the Jews there on that day. Given a promise to David way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And here's what he says in that chapter. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, God promised David saying this, When your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God promised there in 2 Samuel 7 that one would come in the line of David who would be enthroned as king, to put it in these words, forever. Forever and ever and ever. And that promise in 2 Samuel, if you read it in its context, clearly parts of that, of that prophecy and that promise, that covenant promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, clearly parts of it refer to many of David's descendants. Because there are lines in that prophecy. If you, if you read the whole passage, there are lines in it that clearly don't refer to Jesus. For example, there's this line about one of David's, about David's descendants. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him uh, with the rod of men. And, and so clearly, that doesn't apply to Jesus. I mean, that applies to Solomon. That applies to David even. It applies to Solomon and all the other descendants, kingly descendants, but not of the Lord Jesus, of whom Peter says in 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. And the author of Hebrews famously says in Hebrews 4.15 of Jesus that in every respect he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So many of the aspects of that covenant promise in 2 Samuel 7 don't refer to Jesus. It refers to all the other descendants of David leading up to the coming of the Christ. But in some ways that prophecy and that promise in 2 Samuel 7 um, even in the text itself, makes clear that there is one descendant in particular to whom it is pointing. Uh, and it has one descendant in particular in mind that would be the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. The king of whom all the other kings who come before him would just be faint shadows. How so? The text there in, in 2 Samuel 7, to reiterate again, promises one king coming whose throne would be established forever and ever and ever. That isn't true of David or any of his descendants prior to the coming of Christ. And, and interestingly, when you come to the New Testament, when you come to Acts chapter 2, you see Peter on the day of Pentecost preaching, and he's talking about uh, Christ in this way. In Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 32, he stands and he says on Pentecost, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. 
being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath, we're talking about 2 Samuel 7, sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Now Peter there is clearly talking about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and how the resurrection of Jesus from the dead proved once for all that Jesus is that descendant from David who would reign forever. You think that his death on the cross would put an end to that, to that uh, fulfillment, but his resurrection proved his fulfillment once for all. Because while death held on to David, and death held on to all of his other descendants, and their tombs sat there unemptied to that very day, and you could go see them, it couldn't hold on to Jesus, and his reign therefore will be forever. Peter says that was proven by the resurrection, Jesus' fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. Peter says that because of his resurrection, it proves that Jesus is the king who was coming to reign on David's throne forever and ever and ever. But I submit to you here in Matthew 21, even prior to the resurrection, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem on that, that Palm Sunday, he was signaling his kingship, fulfilling the promise made by his triumphal entry according to the pro prophecy of Zechariah. And here's, here's where we need to see the importance of this. Because it's interesting to see in the Scripture, but as we prayed, as we always pray, uh, before we come into the Word, that not, God would not only give us minds to understand the truth and hearts to embrace and love the truth, but He would give us wills to obey whatever it heeds and calls us to do. So we need to understand what's the importance of seeing Jesus as King, the coming King, the fulfilling King, in this prophecy. Uh, and, 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 and here... Jesus' king was coming to save. And, and the first words made about him uh, in Matthew chapter 1 are that he was coming to save his people from their sin. And, and as we're here presenting, uh, presented with Jesus as the long-awaited king, what is the significance of that? Now, we've never, we've never lived under the rule of an earthly king, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean we, we can't understand uh, any, any of the significance here. The predominant characteristic that comes to mind when you think of a king is absolute authority and absolute rule. And in a sense, that is exactly what this is conveying about Jesus to us. And in a sense, to say that Jesus is king is to say that he possesses absolute authority and rule over all that he has made. The scriptures say that there is one day coming where we will all stand before him and we will all be judged by him. Why? Because he is the king to whom, and here's the word, we owe obedience and we owe worship. We owe it to him. That is why we read, for example, in, in the book of Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, that Jesus doesn't just invite sinners to come, he commands sinners to come where we read in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere. He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that is Jesus, whom he has appointed, and of that he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
He commands all people to repent of our sins. How can he do that? Because he made the world and he is Lord and King over it. And he has the authority to do that. It is against him that we sin and he commands that we repent. Nothing, nothing, nothing changes about that fact if we choose to ignore it or if we choose not to believe it. Nothing changes about that fact. No one decides to make Jesus Lord or King over their life. He already is. And we either acknowledge it and submit to him or we don't, both with consequences, one to life and one to death. Matthew highlights that that Jesus, who rode into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, wasn't just a carpenter's son. He was God the Son. And he was, as the book of Revelation teaches, King of kings and Lord of lords. So to come to to save us, to come to Jesus to save us, is also to submit to him as Lord and King. But we also need to see here, as we keep reading the story in Matthew 21, of Jesus' triumphal entry, that he is not only a king coming, but also a prophet coming to us. Jesus as prophet in this passage. Jesus, as Jesus was still coming into town, and as the crowds who lined the streets were still shouting, Hosanna, which means save us now, right? Hosanna, the whole city was being stirred up. And as more and more gathered, uh, and, and, and people who were just showing up to the commotion, they were trying to figure out what in the world was going on, some of them in verse 10 ask, who is this? And the crowd in the, in the very next verse, in verse 11, notice how they answer the question, who is this? They say, this is the prophet Jesus from, from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the prophet Jesus. That's how they chose to describe him. They've already been saying, um, Hosanna to the son of David, recognizing his lordship and his kingship. And when asked, who is this? They say, this is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth. Now, they may have just meant by that, if you want to say, what do they mean by that? They may have just meant by that that he was an authoritative teacher um, like the prophets of old. And that is certainly true. Um, they, they, earlier in his ministry, they had marveled at the authority of his teaching. But... No matter what they meant when they said that, what does Matthew mean when he records that? Because when Matthew tells it, I believe he means much more than simply he was an authoritative teacher. I believe that Matthew certainly knew that way back in the book of Deuteronomy that God had said to Moses in Deuteronomy 18.18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Matthew is saying Jesus is that prophet to come. In fact, he's the final prophet. Uh, he is the final word from God to us. That's how the book of Hebrews begins. Long ago, Hebrews 1.1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken that's, a, that's in the perfect tense. That is a completed action in the past that has ongoing repercussions for the future. He has spoken once and for all to us by His Son. Jesus is God's final word to us. And when Jesus came, He said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. 
All throughout the Old Testament, God sent prophets to say, a Savior is going to come. A Savior is going to come. And Jesus comes declaring, I am that Savior that was promised to come. So moving on, we've seen that that Jesus is presented to us as king. The people also recognize him as prophet. He's king. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. And from that position is the one to whom everyone will give an account and be judged and to whom we must submit. But as prophet, as even the people recognize, he mercifully tells us the truth about how we can be reconciled to him, our king. Mercifully. He tells us that life is found in him. He tells us that forgiveness of sins is found in him. He tells us that, that joy is found in him. He tells us those things, and the reason all those things are found in him is because not only is he king, and not only is he prophet, but he's also priest. We see Jesus presented to us as priest beginning in verse 12. So he's entered, he has already entered Jerusalem by this point, and the first place he goes, according to verse 12, is where? The temple, right? He goes to the temple. I don't think it's mere coincidence that after Jesus has been lauded as king and declared to be a prophet, then he immediately enters into the temple. Because who do you, who, I'm asking who, who do you typically associate uh, with the temple? Priests, right? They are the ones you find working in the temple. And what does he do when he gets there? He exercises complete authority over it. He drives out the corrupt money changers who sat in the, the, uh, the outer court of the temple defrauding people and corrupting uh, the worship of the people. What is the temple? The temple of that time, the temple, even as it was uh, prior to the accomplishment and the inauguration of the new covenant, under the times of the old covenant, the temple was the place where God's manifest presence resided. And the temple was the place where sacrifices were to be offered by the people in an effort to mend the broken relationship between them and God because of sin. Sacrifices were offered daily in the temple. And the book of Hebrews says that daily offering and those major sacrifices offered year after year after year, what were they? They were just a constant reminder that the relationship had not yet actually been mended. It's just a constant reminder of the sin that separates us from God. And so even as they offered those sacrifices, they were waiting in hope for that Savior who would come one day and deal once for all for sin. And as as Jesus walked into the temple that day, little did the people know that in Him, God Himself was walking into the temple court. But even more than that, little did they know that in just five more days, He would offer himself as that once-for-all sacrifice for sins, the sacrifice that really could take away sins and make peace between God and sinners for all who repent of their sins and put their faith and hope in him. So Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. We get get distracted by a lot of things in life. We get distracted especially during this time um, where where the whole world seems to be in upheaval. But the only things that are going to matter in the end, no matter what's happening now, are these. Are you submitting to Jesus Christ as your King and Lord? And are you listening to what He says as your prophet, as the Word of God to you? 
And are you trusting in the way that he has made for you to be reconciled to him as your priest, to be saved and forgiven through the sacrifice that he gave of himself? So as you uh, take some time to reflect on this passage, where normally we would uh, take some time for discussion, as as you're probably by yourself perhaps watching this, and you take some time to reflect, would you reflect in those ways? Am I submitting in my life to Christ the Lord? And am I listening to His Word above all others as my prophet from God? And, and am I trusting in the way He has made as my priest to be reconciled to Him by faith? Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this Word. And I pray that, I pray that You would bring it to bear in our hearts. We iterate. Give us, as You've given us eyes to see the truth here, would You give us hearts to embrace and love it? And would You give us wills to obey it? For the glory of Christ, I pray. Amen.